The scripture reading this morning is Romans 8:28 through 30. It can be found on page 944 in the church Bibles. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, we are finishing up a series of six sermons this morning on this passage, Romans 8, 29, and 30. And our goal in doing it was to walk us through our experience of salvation, how it is that God applies the work of Jesus to us and actually saves us. And this morning we come to the last step, the final step in our salvation, which is an absolutely glorious doctrine, and it's called glorification. If you're new here and you haven't been with us for the series, my name's Mark, and I'm also one of the pastors of the church, and I will be leading us through this last study. Next week, we start a, a new series of sermons for the summer, very interesting series, I think. Um, it's called Twisted, the most misused verses in the Bible. So we're going to attack everybody's favorite verse and tell you you got it all wrong. No, we're not. That's not our goal. But our goal is actually to help us learn how to handle scripture well, and it's not to beat up on people who have, we've all misinterpreted verses. In fact, you're believing verses incorrectly right now, and that's okay. And uh, we grow in our ability to accurately handle God's word. And that's what God wants is, is for us to be equipped to rightly handle and rightly divide the word of truth, as it says in Second Timothy. So that's one of our big goals is to teach us and help us and equip us to more faithfully handle um, God's word. Nothing's more important than, than getting this book right. And we want to, we want to labor to do that well. Paul Tripp, in his book Forever, Why You Can't Live Without It, writes the following. Without forever, in the center of our thinking, our picture of life is like a jigsaw puzzle, missing the central piece. You will simply not have an accurate view of the picture without the piece of the puzzle called Forever. He goes on, this void has had an enormous impact on how we think about ourselves and the struggles we daily face. When it comes to the university classroom, the public square and popular media, the concept of eternity is fundamentally absent. You will never hear Katie Couric close her nightly news broadcast by saying, America, I know things often look bleak and chaotic, but remember that this is not all there is. We're all heading for eternity where all that is broken will be finally and forever fixed. This is Katie Couric, CBS News. Good night. Children watching morning TV has been robbed of forever. Junior high school kids studying history will not be taught how to examine history through the lens of forever. University students in a psych psychology class will not be assigned an essay on the impact of eternity on a human being's emotions and behavior. Most business people investing money don't have eternity in their minds, let alone in the way they think about their portfolio. 
Most couples embracing one another at the altar in marriage don't get the importance of also embracing the sure and coming reality of forever. The young mother looking at her newborn doesn't think that forever is hardwired inside her child. So someone has entered the house of Western culture and stolen a precious family heirloom, but most of us don't even know a robbery has taken place. We go on living as if nothing has happened, but it has, and in powerful and practical ways, it affects us all. And then he concludes with these words. Paul Tripp says, We get up in the morning and do the kinds of things people have done for generations. We buy and sell, plant and harvest. We relate, we commit, we laugh, we love, we fight. We get married, we make families, we work hard, we create things and engineer our surroundings. Some of us build cities and others of us thank God for the suburbs. We think, we analyze, we critique, we try to learn from our mistakes and we attempt to educate and prepare the next generation. We spend lots of time eating and sleeping. We hate to be lonely and we do our best to avoid pain. We search for meaning and purpose and all of us long for an inner sense of well-being. But we have eternity amnesia. And consequently, our lives are much more difficult than they need to be. Well, my goal this morning is to assault eternity amnesia. Because I want us to spend the next 30 minutes or so looking at this wonderful truth of eternity and what it's going to mean for us as God's people. And that truth is crystallized in that simple word at the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 30 glorified. Well, what is glorification or what is, what does it mean to be glorified? Well, to put it simply, and I'm, I'm going to unpack this throughout the sermon, but to give a simple definition, glorification is the complete and final redemption of God's people. It has in view the final and full salvation experience that we are intended to have in Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about three things that glorification includes or involves, and then seven reasons why it matters. All right. So three things that it involves and seven reasons why it matters. Here's the first thing that glorification includes. It includes a new status. Now, if you back up a little bit, if you're in Romans eight, and I hope you are look back up at verse 17, And notice what the Apostle Paul writes here. We're picking up in the middle of a sentence, but he says, And if we are children, that is children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So to be glorified, according to Romans 8, 17, involves the completion of our sonship. It involves sharing in the glory of Jesus, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Colossians 3, 4 points to this as well when it says, Christ, when Christ appears, when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So when Christ appears on the earth, once again, he will be glorified in this very world in which he experienced 30 plus years of absolute humiliation. Every knee will bow, either willingly or unwillingly, and confess that he is Lord, God, King, Savior, Christ. His glory will be seen 
and he will be magnified and glorified. And at that moment, all Christians will share in that glory. And the amazing part of all this is that according to the New Testament, this experience will happen with Christ and the entire church of all history at the exact same time. The saints who have gone before, who will come back with Christ, as Hebrews says, the the souls of just men made perfect, who have left this world as Christians, your family that that that, that have preceded you, who left this world believing, hoping, trusting in Christ alone that are presently with Christ, will return with him. And the saints that are on the earth at that time, those who are following Christ, trusting Christ, hoping in Christ, they will at the same time Christ Jesus is glorified and vindicated, the Son of God and the sons of God will be share in that great glory together. Jesus wanted it to happen that way. He didn't want to be glorified apart from the glorification of his entire church. And so what a tremendous and exciting prospect that is. That here we are at different stages of Christian experience. Some of us have been Christians for decades. Some of us are newly converted. Some of us are highly gifted. Some of us are incredibly godly. And others of us are weak in both grace and gift. But think of all the millions of God's children who have already passed out of this world. But on that day, we shall all together share in the glorification of Jesus Christ. It's as though God has said to himself, I have given my children so much as individuals and as little groups. But now in this last decisive act, in the public proclamation and appearance of my son, I will give all of them my final special blessing all at once. C.S. Lewis says this. The position in the church which the humblest Christian occupies is eternal and even cosmic. The church will outlive the universe. Everything that is joined to the immortal Christ will share his immortality. As mere biological entities, we are apparently of no account. But as organs in the body of Christ, as stones and pillars in the temple, we are assured of our eternal self-identity and shall live to remember the galaxies as an old, old tale. So that's the first thing that glorification includes. It includes a sharing in the glorification of Jesus at his second coming. Here's the second thing that glorification includes, a new body. So not just a new status, but a new body. Look at Romans 8, verse 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves... We Christians who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So while death brings us as believers into the immediate presence of God, our souls leave our bodies and we go and to be with Christ. Nevertheless, God still has work to do in order to bring us to our final and full salvation. Not only is our salvation experience not fully experienced here and now, 
but it's also in a sense not fully experienced when we die. I don't have time to turn us there, but if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first six or seven verses, you'll see Paul talk about this idea of living in a temporary earthly tent. That's what he considers his earthly body. And that when he dies, his spirit will depart to go be with the Lord. But he doesn't want that. That's not his greatest goal. Rather, he says in 2 Corinthians 5 that his greatest desire is to be overclothed, to be super clothed. That is for Christ to return in his lifetime and resurrect his body so that he never has to go through the rending of soul and spirit. Which is going to be all of our experience if we die before Jesus comes back and we're in Christ. But that's not the whole goal. The whole goal of God is not that we escape the body, that our soul goes to live in heavenly bliss somewhere, and that our body goes to rot and decompose in the earth. That's not the final goal of our salvation. Rather, it's a redeemed body. It's a new body. It's a glorified body. God's clearly revealed purpose is not the salvation of souls. Disembodied spirits who have at last gotten rid of the shackles of this earthly body. Rather, the salvation that the New Testament envisions is an embodied existence. It's an embodied existence. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. If you want to turn with me there, just flip over one book of the Bible. Hold your finger in Romans. We're coming back to it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or sorry, verse Corinthians chapter 15, we'll read a couple of verses from this chapter that underscore this embodied existence as the experience of our full salvation. Verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that is what is died, or what's dying, or will die, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Skipping down to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's the final salvation. It's an embodied existence. It's an imperishable body, not subject to corruption, not subject to decay, not subject to death, not subject to disease. Full, spiritual, forever. But a new body is not only a resurrected body, but it's also a transformed body. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul used the language of a spiritual body. Well, back in Romans 8, verse 29, it gives us a view of where this glorified existence is going to take us. We looked at this last week when Jonathan preached on sanctification, but... Let's read the verse in light of glorification too, because that's the great end of sanctification. He foreknew, though for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's this glorified, resurrected Jesus who is currently in a new body who will, that we will share with him in that resurrected embodied existence. He's the firstborn. We're going to follow him because we're his brothers. We're in union with him. 
And notice what that's going to be about. It's going to be a conforming of our bodies to the image of Christ. Doesn't mean we're going to look like Jesus physically. It means we're going to be conformed to his character and nature spiritually. Now, Philippians 3 puts it like this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, Christ Jesus the Lord, who when he returns, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. That's the goal. A new body, a resurrected body, a transformed body. Now, let me say this to any of you friends here this morning who who don't know or may not be sure that you're in Christ. And this will not be your experience. Why can this not be the experience of someone who is not by faith joined to Jesus? Well, because 1 Corinthians 15.50 says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is our normal, decaying, natural, under the curse, infected by sin, human bodies cannot inherit heaven. Because in heaven, we need a completely different kind of body. One that is spiritual and without corruption. Left to ourselves, we are absolutely incapable of changing the nature of our body. All it will do is, because of sin, progressively die and eventually decompose. But that brings us to the good news. That Christ has purchased for his people, anyone who will believe in him, repent of sin, turn to him as Savior and Lord, follow him. That a new body will be given to them with none of the sin-induced limitations of the old one. Because by faith they will be in union with Christ and even our bodies will bear the image of Christ and will be supernaturally changed into the incorruptible immortal bodies required for our entrance into glory. So if we are going to enter heaven, if we are going to be with Christ forever, it's required that we be in union with Christ so we can get the body necessary to live with him. So we got a new status. That is, we're going to share in the glory of Jesus. We got a new body resurrected and transformed to be conformed to his image. Third thing that involved in glorification is a new earth to live in. Romans 8, again, verses 18 through 21 Sum this up nicely. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits, listen to this, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's back in Genesis 3 at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What? Verse 21, all important, that the creation itself, this material world, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That this creation that is currently under bondage, that is filled with sickness and sin and disease and natural disasters and drive-by shootings. That all of that, this world as it presently is, is going to one day be purged of evil and sin and corruption and death and decay 
and made fit for the habitation of God and his people forever. That is the New Testament vision. The New Testament vision is a material vision. It's a physical vision. It's not a vision of the soul finally escaping from the body to go live in some weird spiritual place, floating around, disembodied forever. No. The New Testament vision is that what God began in the beginning is going to be fixed. He created the world. Very good. He loves this planet. He made it. Everything in it that he made was very good. Sin has spoiled it. God is not the kind of God that's going to kick his creation to the curb. No, he's going to, and we read this throughout the whole story of the Bible. He is gathering his people. He is saving his people. He is calling his people to himself so that at the end, he may return to the earth, purge it of evil and set it up for the human habitation with God that it was intended to be at the beginning. And that's the vision of the Bible. Look with me, if you will, at second Peter. Keep again, keep your finger in Romans. We'll be coming back there, but we're going to flip around just a little bit to second Peter in the new Testament chapter three. And it gives us a picture of what this final cleansing of the earth is going to look like. Second Peter chapter three. And verse 13 and 14. Second Peter three. Verses 13 and 14. Actually, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, not 13 and 14. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now let's stop there. That doesn't necessarily sound like the earth's going to stick around, does it? I mean, if you read that verse at first, you go, whoa, that doesn't at all sound like that God's going to be preserving this earth. I mean, the heavens are going to be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt. Well, let's just keep reading. All right. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the earth ain't going away. Okay, so this heaven, this heaven sent fire and disillusion that's going to take place must be something other than total annihilation, right? It must have in view what the Bible has in view a lot of times with fire, which is purification, cleansing. In fact, even first Peter uses the language of fire to talk about the purification of our faith, the cleansing of our faith. But I want us to just back up a little bit in Second Peter and go back up to the illustration that he uses in verse 5. Notice what he says before he talks about all this being set on fire and dissolved. Back in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5, he says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for the fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So that's really clear. He's comparing the final day and the purging of the earth to the flood. The flood did not destroy this earth. 
But in a sense, it did. It didn't destroy everything about the earth, but it cleaned the earth. It wiped the earth clean. It purged the earth of evil. At least all the evil that was present in the world, except for that in the heart of Noah. So this whole idea that the second coming of Christ and the new earth is going to bring about an entire destruction is just not true. It's going to bring about a perishing of sorts, but not a annihilation. It's going to be a cleansing, a melting, a purification of the earth. And we see this really crystal clear in Revelation 21. Would you go there with me? Revelation 21, the last couple chapters in the Bible, which picture for us this new earth that is coming. So let me just say it again really clearly that the goal of God's final salvation is not individual souls escaping the earth, but heaven coming down to earth to renew it. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, you know. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that, we're praying for this. We're praying for the new heavens and the new earth to come. And all the things that God wants to do before that. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And the all too important phrase for our purposes is in verse two. I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. When that happens, God's not going anywhere. He's not leaving. He's coming to set up his home here. And every impediment to unhindered fellowship and union between God and his people is removed and full and complete salvation becomes the experience of every child of God. So notice the following characteristics of our future home here in Revelation 21. Notice It's a safe place. It's a safe place. Revelation 21 verses 11 through 25, which we didn't read and we're not going to, discusses the foundation, the walls, and the gates of the city. This city will be unshakable. No force will be able to topple it. No enemy will be able to enter it. The gate of the city will never have to be shut, Revelation 21-25 says, because there's no enemy to worry about anyway. So you don't have to shut the gate. Also, you notice in verse 1 of Revelation 21 that the sea was no more. The sea was a great threat. It invited invasion. But there's going to be no need for that because there's going to be no need for an invasion. There's going to be no need for worry. It's going to be a safe, secure place. Secondly, it's going to be an expensive place. Revelation 21, 11, and 18 detail the glory and attractiveness of this city. Nothing of beauty or worth is spared. It's going to be a splendid and attractive home. That no amount of fixing up or remodeling or rebuilding will be able to compare to. 
It will be a big place. Revelation 21, 16 gives the dimensions. And the idea is that it's going to be big enough for all of Christ's redeemed people from all of history and every space will be occupied. It's going to be a Christ inhabited place. Verse 23 reminds us that the centerpiece of the city's great glory is Jesus Christ himself. And this is underscored in verse 21 or verse 6 of chapter 21 where it's, we're reminded that there is no temple in this city. There's no need for a temple because the Lord is there in our midst. So it's going to be a safe place. It's an expensive place. It's a big place. It's a Christ inhabited place. It's a sin free place. The curse is gone. Chapter 22. Verse three. No longer will there be anything accursed. Everything that sin has marred and corrupted and destroyed and tainted will be taken away. No more curse. Death will be gone. Chapter 21, verse 4, there will be no more death. No more funerals. Death will be once and for all laid in the grave. Sadness will be gone. Everything that breaks our hearts and wounds our spirits is done. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Pain's going to be gone. The new glorified body will not be, not only be incapable of sinning, it's going to be incapable of suffering. Tears are going to be gone. God's going to wipe away all tears because with the removal of all the things that produce tears, namely death, curse, sadness, sickness, pain, when God gets rid of all that creates tears, There's going to be no more cause for tears other than those of joy. So curse is gone. Death is gone. Sadness is gone. Pain is gone. Tears are gone. Hindrances are gone. There's no more night. 2125 says night is what cause according to John nine, four night is what causes work to cease. But there's no need for that because our new environment will be an everlasting day requiring no pause in our constant enjoyment of God and our service to him. It's going to be an ecstatic, dynamic, wonderful, glorious, magnificent, transcendent experience for eternity with God, with his people in the renewed earth in an embodied existence forever. I want to be a Christian because of that. I want to be a Christian because when I think about my future, it's not tied and tethered to now. So those are the three things that have to do with glorification. We get a new status, we get a new body, and we get a new earth. But let me, in the remaining few minutes we have together, close with seven quick reasons why glorification matters. And I'll have to just spend a minute or so on each one of these. So we're just going to tick them off. They're worthy of a lot more discussion. Here's the first one. It matters 
for our assurance. Because guess what? In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, for the Christian, glorification's a done deal. It's a past tense. If you have been justified, counted righteous, have your sins forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, if you are now progressively through that justification and in in, in accordance with the faith that justifies are making progress and growing toward Christ's likeness, you're headed for glorification and it's a done deal. That's why he can say in Romans eight thirty, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Nobody falls out in between those two verbs. Both are past tense. Both are definitive. Both are decisive and both are final. They're guaranteed. So if we have been justified, if you sit here today, forgiven of your sin, made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, you're as good as glorified. You're as good as a new embodied existence on the new earth 15 trillion years from now. That's our, that matters for our assurance. Second thing. It puts things in perspective, doesn't it? We don't have to pack everything into this life as though this is all there is. So better to burn out than fade away. Let's get after it. I mean, we got a bucket list. Look, if you get an embodied existence on the new earth forever, you can let a few things go off your bucket list. You don't have to see the Grand Canyon. You'll get to see it. You don't have to do that, that you're so convinced of that you must do before you die. Believe me, it's not going to matter in 15 trillion years. For the Christian, our good things can never be lost and the best is always yet to come. So let's not sweat it. All right. Let's not feel like we got to pack everything in now. We got to do it all now. We got to figure it all out now. We got to cross off more things on the to do list now. No, because 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that our light and momentary affliction, this light, brief life, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Number three, we can be really happy. We can be really, really happy. Romans 5, 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We ought not to be miserable. We got a great future, a secure future, a foundation that can't be shaken, a promise that can't be broken, a Christ that has been raised from the dead and who is coming again. We're going to make it. An embodied existence on the new heavens and the new earth forever with Jesus. No more tears, no more pain, no more curse. We can be happy. We can make it through anything if we're looking forward to that. We can make it through the hardest suffering. And we can legitimately enjoy everything in this creation without it becoming idolatrous. Because we're not attaching all of our significance, all of our hope, all of our pleasure, all of our joy to it. It can come and it can go. We can have it for a while and it can go away. We can enjoy health for a season, go through a season of sickness. We can have our kids for a little while and they grow up and leave us. We can, you know, all that stuff. 
We can enjoy the season of life for what it is and not make it an idol that we don't ever want to live out of. Because we know that's not our ultimate hope anyway. We can be happy with whatever God gives because we know that what he's ultimately going to give is going to make us really happy. Also, fourth thing, so not only is it assurance, we don't have to pack everything into life, we can be happy, we can persevere. We can make it to the end. Second Timothy chapter 4 reminds us of this truth. This is how Paul got through all of his incredible suffering, something that most of us will never even touch a thimble full of. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 and 18. Notice what got Paul through all of his trials when Demas deserted him and everyone left him. Verse 16, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I mean, he's been abandoned by all his friends. He's sitting there in jail by himself with nobody. And he says this, may it not be charged against them. God, don't hold it against Demas that he abandoned me. Don't hold it against all my friends who have walked away from me. Don't hold it against them. You see that heart? That heart that says, I want their forgiveness. I want their restoration. I want your blessing on them. Man, talk about loving your enemies. He says, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me, get this, safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what was on Paul's mind sitting in prison? No friends. Glorification. Glorification. He's thinking about the end. He's thinking about God's by my side. I'm not going to be abandoned. I'm going to make it to his eternal heavenly kingdom. I can deal with a dozen friends leaving me in jail by myself. So we can persevere. We can also have hope in our fight against sin. First John chapter three. First John three. Verse 2 and 3 encourages us along these ways. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, been, not yet appeared. I'm going to be amazed at what some of y'all are going to look like. It's going to be amazing. Not that you're ugly now, I'm just saying. But it's going to be a staggering to look at each other. What we have, what we will have, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see that glorification connected to fighting sin. We are going to be glorified. Verse two, we are going to appear. He's going to appear and we're going to be changed to be like him as he is. So what's the application for now? Verse three, fight sin. Anyone who has that hope that he's going to be conformed to the glory of, tr- of Christ when Christ returns and appears is going to make war on their sin in this life, which means drunkenness is not going to be treated casually. 
Illicit sex is not going to be treated casually. Lying is not going to be treated casually. Greed is not going to be treated casually. Bitterness is not going to be treated casually. It's going to be attacked and severed and killed because we want to get there. Because that's how a person whose heart has been captured by this great future fights in their life. They're willing to go to the mat with their sin for that future. And if you're not willing to go to the mat with your sin, to do whatever needs to be done, to fight it, keep fighting it, keep fighting it, not surrender it. Even if I've been struggling with it for 35 years, I'm going to go to the mat with it every day of my life and keep fighting because I want Jesus. And I want that new heavens and new earth. Not because the fighting of our sin earns that, but it reveals that we are going there. If you don't fight, don't have any assumption that you're going to be glorified. All right? Drop that idea. If you, now listen to what I said. If you don't fight, not if you don't struggle. That's the sign that you're going to be glorified. Not that you've decisively conquered. We're never going to get there. But it crops up, cut off. Crops up, cut off. Crops up, cut off. Crops up, crops up, crops up. Cut, cut, cut. We fight, we fight, we fight. We, we fight back the weeds of sin. We try to get to the root. We attack our sin with vigilance. So, a couple more things. We suffer well. We suffer well. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, get this, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You notice how the biblical writers, whenever they're talking about really bad stuff happening to us and really bad suffering and really bad trials, they always just go right to glorification and right to worship. That's where they go because they realize, okay, I'm staring down a tube of suffering. I'm staring down a life of difficulty because I've chosen to follow Christ. I'm staring down a life of swimming upstream. I'm inviting suffering. I'm inviting difficulty. I'm pushing back. And they start to feel that. And it bothers them and it hurts and it's struggle. And they're like, okay, let me breathe here for a second. Okay. The God who called me to his eternal glory in Christ will get me there. Praise you forever, God. That's the way the New Testament talks. That's the way Christians talk. So we suffer well. We suffer with tears. We suffer with brokenness. We suffer with great struggles, but we suffer well. And finally, this helps us to avoid super spirituality. What do I mean by super spirituality? I mean talking like we don't live in, an, in a body in a world. You've met those people, right? The comedian Michael Jr. calls them oversaved people. They got to turn everything into a spiritual conversation. Everything's a spiritual point. You know, if you're va- he, he talks about if you're vacuuming with a dirt devil, they want to purge the, you know, exercise the demon out of your vacuum. You know, or if you're watching something on television and uh, 
you know, um, and you lean over to the person and you say, hey, I'm thirsty. Can you get me something to drink? Yeah, but you need to be thirsty for the Lord. <laughs> you know, they almost talk like, like it's just like this world is the worst. I mean, evil. I can't wait. It's terrible. I just hate all this pe- these people. They're terrible. They're, they're, they're going to infect me with their sin virus and they're, they're worldly and I don't want to be around them and they're gross. Ooh, let me go huddle in the church where I can be a Christian and they can stop polluting me. Get out. I mean, that's not what the doctrine of glorification is meant to teach us. It's meant to teach us to care about this material world that God has created. And especially the people in the world who are in material bodies and have material needs. This is not to say that the eternal needs of the soul are not paramount and important. Of course, gospel got to be primary, got to get the message there. But in the meantime, we got to care about health care. We got to care about conditions of people, how, what they're living like, what they're, how they're suffering, how they're struggling. We got to talk about that, care about that. We can't always as individuals do much about it, but we can care and pray and serve and seek to understand and engage. Jesus cared. He cared about people's lives. He cared about what's going on in their families. He cared about whether or not somebody's sick in their house. He cared about whether or not there was relational conflict between people. He cared whether or not somebody had been, you know, taking care of debts that he hadn't paid. He, he cared about, he cared about the place he lived in. And we need to be the same because we live in a world of materialism doesn't mean we need to swing to the opposite end of the pendulum and just say, well, all that God cares about are spiritual things. Glorification teaches us that God cares about the body. He cares about the world because he's committed to renewing it. And we need to be care. We need to care about it as well. So in Christ, brothers and sisters, we have a glorious end. Citizenship in the heavenly kingdom is certain for every person that's united to Christ and it's reserved for believers alone. Revelation 21, 27 is a sobering reminder. And this, with this, I'm going to close right near the end of the Bible. It talks about those who are going to be excluded from that new bodied new earth existence, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So how do you know if I'm written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, Revelation teaches that really clear. Your name and his heart and his name on your forehead. Now, nobody go out and do a crazy tattoo this afternoon, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Name on your forehead means when people look at you, and interact with you, they know exactly who you are. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus Christ, unashamed. Name right there. You can see it. Christ Jesus. I belong to him. So Christ knows those who belong to him. And not one of his redeemed people will be missing. Not one who has been chosen, called, and justified will fail to be glorified it's the certain and magnificent end to our salvation. And that is, that is the certain end to this sermon. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for such a, 
time to think about our glorious future that you have given us by grace in Christ Jesus. Lord, this was a feeble attempt, an inadequate, very imperfect attempt, because we acknowledge, like the Bible says, that we've, we see in the glass darkly right now. We, we can barely grasp the height and width and depth and breadth of the future that you have provided for us, the inheritance, the glorious inheritance, as the Bible calls it. We can't grasp it, but we pray that what we have seen today would fill our hearts, would renew us to fight our sin, to suffer well, to be happy people, to serve those around us, to be released from the perpetual need for more stuff, and to devote ourselves to that which really matters because we know that in 10,000 years, as the song says, bright shining as the sun, will no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. Help us to keep our lives in that glorified perspective. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.